the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to Vatican Insider. I just wanted to tell you I'll be away for a bit on vacation, but my terrific colleagues and friends at EWTN Radio will be preparing a best-of series in my absence. So sit back this weekend and enjoy a special listening adventure. Welcome to Vatican Insider. This week, I take you to a shrine that might be lesser known outside of Italy, but is extremely popular here, St. Gabriel of the Sorrowful Virgin. Let's start that journey. Assisi, that medieval Umbrian hill town of crenellated walls, red tile roofs, narrow cobblestone streets, and soaring church domes, can actually lay claim to a second St. Francis. Francis Possenti was born there on March 1, 1838, 756 years after his namesake, and he's better known today by the name he took when he entered the Passionist Order, Gabriel of the Sorrowful Virgin. He died in a monastery founded by St. Francis at Isola Gran Sasso, nestled in a valley in the majestic Apennine Mountains. He died there on February 27, 1862, just two days before his 24th birthday. The 11th of the 13 children of a very pious couple, Santi Pocenti and Agnes Fischiotti, Francis was an average boy in many respects, and in fact one biographer describes him as not at all a born saint. He was always on the run, forever getting into mischief, fighting, impetuous, headstrong. He began to smoke, although he knew his father did not approve. He gave up this practice only when it led to his telling a lie. Now, when his beloved mother died in 1842, Francis was only four. He was inconsolable, running through the house calling for her in tears. No one seemed able to give him solace except the little statue of Our Lady of Sorrows that he kept in his room. Throughout his boyhood years, Francis would turn more and more to Mary. In his teens, Francis was a good student. He liked fancy clothes, dressed impeccably, and loved sports especially hunting and also dancing. Indeed, he was known as the dancer. He was also very religious and generous to a fault, two qualities instilled in him by his parents. The religious side was further nurtured in his early school years by the Christian brothers and in high school by the Jesuits. Slowly, he began to see it was not what a person had in life, but what a person became, how one used one's life for others. In the midst of earthly pleasures, he somehow felt dissatisfied, and he sought something that would give real meaning to his life. In fact, when he entered the passionate novitiate at Morovale in 1856, he wrote, If I had stayed in the world, I would surely have lost my soul. Francis repeatedly heard the Lord's call, Sell whatever thou hast, and come follow me. Two serious illnesses made him promise the Lord he would indeed follow if he was healed. Twice, the promise was not kept. The turning point came in August 1856 in Spoleto, where the Pacenti family had moved several years earlier. There was a procession on August 22nd, bearing the icon of Our Lady that was enshrined in that city's cathedral to thank God for having ended a cholera epidemic. As the image passed, Francis heard Our Lady's voice. Francis, what are you doing here? This world is not for you. Be quick to enter the religious life. 
on September 10th, guided by his great love for our Lord's Passion and for Mary, and accompanied by his brother Aloysius, a Dominican priest, he entered the Passionist Order, and he took the name of Gabriel of the Sorrowful Virgin. Gabriel would never live to be ordained a priest, but in his few short years with the Passionists, he was an example to both young and old, an example of humility, of acceptance of God's will, of joy in suffering, of a total commitment to Mary and to the suffering of Christ and to religious life. Those who lived with him, in particular his spiritual advisor, Father Norbert, saw a young man who personified the Beatitudes. Father Norbert described the secret of Gabriel's sanctity. What that young man did, he did with love. After several years of heroic suffering with tuberculosis, he died on February 27, 1862. And so the last days of St. Gabriel of the Sorrowful Virgin, wrote a biographer, passed gently over to his first days in heaven. Buried in the little church of the Passionists at Gran Sasso, where he spent the last two and a half years of his life, Gabriel was not forgotten by either his fellow Passionists or the townspeople. But it was not until his body was exhumed in 1892 that the first of many miracles attributed to him began to occur. His fame spread. He was declared blessed in 1908 by Pope Pius X, and Father Norbert and several members of his family were present for the beatification. He was proclaimed a saint in 1920 by Pope Benedict XV. In 1926, he was declared patron of Catholic youth, and in 1959, John the Twenty Third, St. John XXIII, named him patron of the Abruzzo region, where the shrine is. When St. Francis of Assisi arrived at Isola Gran Sasso in 1215, he found a chapel dedicated to the Annunciation. Nearby, he began construction of a monastery and a larger church dedicated to the Annunciation. This church, the Church of the Passionists and the Youthful Gabriel, was restored in 1590 and enlarged to its present size in 1908 for the Beatification. Today, Gabriel's remains are in a magnificent side chapel in the since-enlarged basilica, set in the stupendous scenery of Isola Gran Sasso. To accommodate the over two million pilgrims who annually visit St. Gabriel, work on a new shrine began in 1970. The breathtakingly beautiful shrine, with its stunning mosaics, stained glass windows, and ceilings that soar heavenward, can accommodate 6,000 faithful for liturgical functions. It also has rooms for conferences, exhibits, and retreats, and a modern chapel for the Sacrament of Reconciliation with 30 confessionals. Starting at Easter, the influx of visitors is such that even with a priest at every confessional, the average wait is two hours for penitence. The Passionist Fathers point with pride to the fact that people willingly wait two hours to confess. At the corners of the transept are four bi-directional staircases that lead to the crypt chapel of St. Gabriel. In the months when the number of visitors taxes the capacity of the old basilica, Gabriel's remains are moved to this crypt, which was inaugurated by St. John Paul II in 1985. St. Gabriel's is one of the most visited shrines in Italy and, in fact, forced the Italian government to add to the Rome Adriatic Autostrada in order to make the shrine easily accessible to pilgrims. Isola Gran Sasso is very small and has few accommodations for visitors, most of whom just come for the day. Gabriel of the Sorrowful Virgin is very much alive today. The Passionist Fathers have seen to that. 
as have the millions of visitors over the years, especially the great numbers of young people who find an inspiration, an ideal, a model to be followed in this holy man who died so young. They, like Gabriel, have dreams, wants, needs, and passions. Yet also, like Gabriel, they seek a deeper meaning to their lives. Gabriel's sanctity did not consist in doing spectacular works for God, but rather in doing the simple works of everyday life out of a spectacular love for God. And that is a love within everyone's reach. This is one of my favorite shrines, and there's a very personal reason for that. Many years ago, when I was working at the Holy See Press Office, the vice director was indeed a passionist priest, Father Chiro. I had been asked by the register to do a series of articles on shrines in Italy, and I did not know of this one. And Father said, we'll tell you what, you have to get to know St. Gabriel, the second St. Francis, and I'll take you to the shrine. So we drove out there one Sunday, attended Mass. I visited the shrine. Of course, I had an expert's guided knowledge. And then I had lunch with every one of the Passionist priests at the Basilica. These lunches are always a lot of fun. They were curious about my work at the Holy See Press Office, and I, of course, was curious about the Passionists and their beautiful shrine. Welcome to the Q&A. How many times have you tuned into Rome on Sundays when popes pray either the Angelus or the Regina Chaley from the window of their study in the Apostolic Palace? You know, the window that overlooks St. Peter's Square where the faithful are ready to pray with the Pope. If you were asked the difference between the two or when they are prayed, what would your answer be? Well, it seems that what we call the Angelus originated with the 11th century monastic custom of reciting three Hail Marys at evening prayers or Compline. The word Angelus began to be used in place of or alternating with the words Ave Maria, as both referred to the greeting by the angel Gabriel to Mary, announcing the incarnation and Mary's acceptance to become the mother of God. In time, the three Hail Marys and meditation on the incarnation were added to morning prayer at 6 and again at noon. In fact, church bells for centuries rang at 6 a.m., 12 noon, and 6 p.m., calling people to stop what they were doing and pray. The Angelus is recited throughout the liturgical year, except at Easter time. The Regina Chaley, Latin for Queen of Heaven, is recited from Easter Sunday to and including Pentecost, and it reflects on the Lord's resurrection and on his blessed mother. Though authorship is unknown, in the first half of the 13th century it was in Franciscan use after Compline. Two interesting historical notes. In 1742, Pope Benedict XIV asked that the Regina Chaley be prayed in place of the Angelus Domini during the liturgical season of Easter. In 1964, it was Pope St. Paul VI who began to pray the Angelus publicly on a weekly basis at St. Peter's Square, accompanied by a short address to the pilgrims there. It's important to know that a partial indulgence is granted the Christian faithful who devoutly recite these prayers during the time stated. was a doctor of the church and one of the greatest defenders of Christ's divinity. Matthew Bunsen and the doctors of the church. And Athanasius of Alexandria fought against the Arian heresy that questioned the divinity of Christ. He once condemned the Arians as opposers of Christ who had dug a pit of ungodliness. It was said of him, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, but for Christ. He died in 373. 
For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. EWTN is everywhere. EWTN radio programming is provided free of charge to over 500 domestic and international AM and FM radio stations. It's a great teaching tool for Catholics and non-Catholics alike. For a complete list of EWTN AM and FM stations across America, visit EWTNradio.net. At the bottom of the page, click Affiliates. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. EWTN, teaching the truth. Thanks for the excellent programming. We had a representative from the local Catholic radio uh, yesterday at Mass, and he encouraged uh, the the members to listen. And, you know, it seems like excellent programming, very thought-provoking. I just love your program. I, I wanted to tell you guys that the Catholic radio is just the greatest thing in my life. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Welcome back to Vatican Insider and to another special I've prepared on a much-loved, very celebrated Italian shrine. We will actually take a mini-pilgrimage to Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii, a half-hour south of Naples, which has a beautiful and even touching story. It's a shrine that has a special place in my heart. My very first encounter in 1997 with a prelate of this beloved Marian shrine is at the end of this story. It's a surprising and unexpected encounter that will help you understand why I have a special place in my heart and in my memories for the late Archbishop Francesco Saverio Topi. In 2015, I was back on yet another visit. An acquaintance of mine from those days that we both worked in the Roman Curia, Archbishop Tommaso Caputo, the prelate of this beloved Marian shrine, had celebrated the 11 a.m. Mass, which I had attended, and I was blessed to have a chance to speak with him in the sacristy before Mass with the help of a volunteer Dame of Malta, Christiana. Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii is also beloved by popes. Pope St. John Paul II visited Pompeii on October 21, 1979, during a visit to Naples, and he returned there on October 7, 2003, for the conclusion of the Year of the Rosary. Pope Benedict XVI presented his sixth golden rose to Our Lady at the Shrine of Pompeii during the month dedicated to the Rosary on October 19, 2008. And Pope Francis visited this Marian shrine on March 21, 2015. I had visited just before his trip to the shrine. After spending several minutes in quiet prayer before the famous image of Our Lady of the Rosary, the Pope greeted the faithful, saying, Thank you. Thank you so much for this warm welcome. We prayed to Our Lady so that she might bless us all, you, me, and the whole world. We need Our Lady to watch over us. And pray for me, don't forget. Now I invite you all to recite a Hail Mary to Our Lady, and then I will give you my blessing. Pope Francis has often spoken of his love for the Virgin Mary and the importance of Marian shrines. Archbishop Caputo described Pope Francis's visit to Pompeii as an event of extraordinary ecclesial importance. And Our Lady of the Rosary had a special place in Francis's heart in the pandemic year of 2020. During the May 6th Wednesday general audience, in greetings to Italian-language faithful listening into the audience as it was live-streamed from the Papal Library of the Apostolic Palace, 
Pope Francis reminded them that two days later, on May 8th, an intense prayer of petition to Our Lady of the Rosary will be raised at the Shrine of Pompeii. I urge everyone to unite themselves spiritually to this popular act of faith and devotion, so that through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin, the Lord may grant mercy and peace to the Church and to the whole world. In fact, twice each year, on May 8th and again on the first Sunday of October, solemn prayers of petition are offered at the Marian Shrine of Pompeii for the needs of the whole world. Now I'm going to start the story of the shrine with a quote from the man who founded Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii. Quote, With the boldness of desperation, I lifted my face and hands to the Heavenly Virgin and cried, If it be true that you promised St. Dominic that whoever spreads the rosary will be saved, I will be saved, because I will not leave Pompeii until I have spread your rosary. Those are the words of Blessed Bartolo Longo said in Pompeii, Italy, in October 1872. Now, let's go back a bit in time for the story of Blessed Bartolo and the Shrine of Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii. At 1 p.m. on August 24, 79 B.C., Mount Vesuvius rumbled, roared, and then erupted, heaving its molten insides onto the populace of Pompeii and burying the ancient city. What remained was only a ghostly silence of a once-flourishing center. The new Pompeii would arise 1,796 years later. Called the Miracle City by its inhabitants, Pompeii as we know it today is the result of that promise made by Bartolo Longo, a lawyer and devout layman, a promise that became a reality in 1875 when work began on the construction of the church dedicated to Our Lady of the Rosary. The church and the buildings housing the charitable works associated with it eventually led to the birth of the city, the new Pompeii. Bartolo Longo was born in 1841 near Brindisi on Italy's Adriatic coast. Those who knew him as a young man described him as cordial, easygoing, of a lively intelligence, and devoted to the church. However, his university years were to be troubled ones, as anti-clerical sentiments were running strong in newly unified Italy. Prodded by anti-church liberals, Bartolo tested the waters, if you will, of spiritism, and he went through a crisis in his faith. Aided by two good friends, Professor Vincenzo Pepe and the learned Dominican father Alberto Radente, he not only rediscovered his faith, but renounced his legal career and devoted himself to works of charity and religious studies. Providence brought Bartolo Longo to the little town of Pompeii, a half hour south of Naples, in 1872, where a widow and the mother of five, the Countess Mariana de Fusco, asked him to administer her property. Struck by the human and religious poverty of the peasants of the area, Bartolo anguished over how he could help them better their lives. Following a divine inspiration, he decided to devote himself to teaching the catechism and spreading devotion to the rosary, remembering Father Radente's words, If you are looking for salvation, propagate the rosary. It is the promise of Mary. He who propagates the rosary shall be saved. For three years, Bartolo Longo organized yearly festivals in the fall to bring the people together for catechesis and to pray the rosary. This could be best achieved, he felt, if the people had a proper church with an image of Our Lady of the Rosary as the focal point. Thus, in 1875, 
he began searching the stores of Naples, hoping to have one in time for that year's concluding ceremonies on November 13th. The ever-faithful and supportive Father Rodente recalled that years earlier he had bought such an image which he had entrusted to Sister Maria Conchetta of the Conservatory of the Rosary at Porta Medina. Bartolo hurried to Porta Medina, asked for the painting, and was horrified when he saw how ugly it was and how much in need of repair. He would later write, Dear me, I felt a tightening around my heart as soon as I set eyes on it. When Countess de Fusco saw the painting of the Virgin with the Child Jesus handing rosaries to St. Dominic and St. Rose of Lima, she said, It seems to have been made specifically to discourage devotion. To make matters worse, the size of the painting precluded Bartolo taking it to Pompeii on the train. The only other possible form of transportation was through a wagoneer who weekly transported a load of manure to Pompeii. So the wagon it was to be. The painting was touched up for the November 13th ceremony and has since been restored three times, during which St. Rose was changed to St. Catherine of Siena. Today, the painting hangs above the main altar of the basilica, beckoning to several million pilgrims annually, as strongly as it once repulsed Bartolo Longo and his loyal supporters. By 1855, some 940 cures and miracles were ascribed to Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii. The number well exceeds that today, as witnessed by the countless ex-votos lining the walls of the shrine and adjacent buildings. On my first visit, as I lingered to study several hundred of the votive offerings, the ex-voto a catechesis to Mary's intercession, I realized that here was the true history of the shrine. A single man's love for the rosary, transmitted to generations of faithful. He loved, they believed, and together they built what is today one of the preeminent Marian shrines in the world. Each year on May 8th and on the first Sunday of October, thousands of faithful gather at the shrine for the Feast of the Supplication, to petition favors, and to offer thanksgiving for favors received. In fact, most if not all of the plaques of thanksgiving that line the walls and halls and corridors of this shrine have the letters PGR on them, per grazie ricevute, for favors received, and this is what I referred to earlier as ex votos. The neoclassical pontifical shrine and basilica of Our Lady of the Rosary, in all of its frescoed marble splendor, was dedicated in 1891, fifteen years after Bartolo began to collect pennies from the peasants to build this citadel to Mary. But our devoted lawyer felt that this monument would be incomplete if works of charity were not part of it, and so, over the years, until his death in 1926, Bartolo founded homes for orphan girls, for the sons of prisoners, and later orphaned boys. Today, this monumental complex, the pulsating heart of the new Pompeii, includes administrative offices, a chapel for confessions, a school, a home for elderly women, and the offices of the monthly publication, The Rosary and the New Pompeii. It began in 1884. It also houses the living quarters and offices of the prelate of Pompeii and the shrine director. On my first visit to the shrine a number of years ago, I had a long conversation with the then director, Monsignor Pietro Gaggiano, who was also my guide to the shrine. It was a Sunday morning and after Mass we began our tour. 
At the end of our visit, Monsignor Gargiano left his office for a minute, and when he came back, he asked me if I had lunch plans. I said I had nothing special planned, probably just someplace near the shrine, and he said that Archbishop Francesco Tobi, the prelate of the shrine and territorial prelature, wanted to invite me for lunch. It was a great lunch with marvelous conversation. If I had a hundred questions about the shrine, Archbishop Topi had two hundred questions about the Pope, the Vatican, the press office, and any interesting tidbits I could give him. After lunch, I had a really special treat when Monsignor and the Archbishop took me to one of the rooms that Pope John Paul had been to during his 1979 visit. Archbishop Topi walked to an immense piece of furniture, opened at the top drawer and took out a very large book the Shrine's VIP guest book. He proudly opened it to John Paul's signature, and then he showed me a few more famous names, and then opened to a blank page and asked me to sign the book. I said, in no way did I feel worthy to be part of such an important volume. And he said, but we are all children of God. So my signature has now been immortalized in Pompeii. The devotion of this wonderful Capuchin Archbishop and Monsignor Gargiano to the shrine in Bartolo Longo was palpable as they spoke reverently of his exemplary life and emphasized the fact it was a layperson who accomplished the, quote, miracle of Pompeii, who founded the still-flourishing works of charity, and who in 1897 founded the Dominican Sisters of the Holy Rosary of Pompeii. Both of them also pointed with pride to Pope John Paul's 1979 visit to the shrine and to the tomb of the man he would beatify the following year. In fact, Blessed Bartolo Longo is buried beneath the image he had wished. We spoke of miracles and of saints. I asked if it was harder today in a fast-paced secular world with temptations on every corner to become a saint. Archbishop Topi answered, Every time has its trials and its temptations, and every time has its saints. We are conditioned by the times in which we live, and we adjust to meet those times and face up to those trials. Now a little postscriptum. On April 2, 2014, exactly seven years to the day of his death, the cause for canonization for Archbishop Tolpe was opened. The current prelate of the Shrine of Our Lady of the Rosary of Pompeii, as I said earlier, Archbishop Tommaso Caputo, having asked the opinion of the other bishops of the Campana region, and having obtained the nulla osta, nothing's in the way, of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints, decreed the introduction of the cause. The request was put forth by Father Carlo Coloni, OFM Cap, Postulator General of the Cause of Beatification of Archbishop Topi. And another postscriptum. In April 2014, Monsignor Gaggiano, former administrator of the shrine, was named rector of the local seminary. Thanks for tuning in to the Best of Vatican Insider while I'm on vacation. And thanks to my EWTN colleagues and their hard work in preparing this week's program. Come back next weekend for another special listening adventure. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.